0: Hello all and welcome to another episode of A Portrait of Possibilities. Where curators at the Art Gallery of Ontario interview experts to learn more about our recent acquisition, Portrait of a Lady Holding an Orange Blossom. Throughout the series, we'll talk to specialists on topics as diverse as race, gender, botany, fashion, and art conservation to better understand the world that produced our enigmatic portrait of a woman of color standing outside in lavish dress, offering the viewer more questions than answers. I'm Adam Levine, Assistant Curator of European Art. And I'm Monique Johnson, Interim Assistant Curator of European Art. In today's episode, I'm delighted to speak to Deborah Metzger, Deborah is the assistant curator of botany at the Royal Ontario Museum and curated the current exhibition, Florals, Desire and Design, which explores the European fascination with plants and flowers in the 1700s as expressed through botanical illustration and botanical motifs on Indian painted cottons that were exported from India to Europe. In this era of colonialism and global trade, Plants and flowers played a part in Europe's imperialist impulse to collect and consume goods. Deborah, we're really looking forward to learning more from you today about the botanical element in our portrait, so thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me, Uh, Monique. This is a really unique painting and a great opportunity.
0: When we acquired the portrait of a lady in January, it was indicated that the plant featured in the portrait was an orange blossom. Looking at the work, this detail in the painting is really given considerable attention, which is why it's included in the descriptive title. But just to be clear, this is not the title the artist assigned to the work. We unfortunately don't have a record of that. We see the young woman's raised hand, which is delicately holding a small sprig with narrow green leaves, two blooming white flowers, and two buds. So there's a long tradition of portraits of women holding flowers in European art. In fact, during research, I discovered that there's actually a Wikimedia Commons page devoted to such images from the 15th through the 20th centuries. So on one hand, we're working with a conventional pose and prop in the history of portraiture. But within this tradition, flowers of different varieties came to symbolize different things. So perhaps the first question we can ask you, Deborah, as a botanical expert is, when you look at this element within the image as a curator of botany, can you confirm that the blossom and the potted tree behind it are both
1: oranges? So I'm going to answer that in two parts. What is immediately apparent is that the sprig that the young lady is holding in her hand is from a citrus tree, and that its leaves and flower clusters are the same shape as those on the potted tree in the background, even though the leaves on the tree appear to be bigger. Oranges belong to the genus Citrus in the plant family Rutaceae, along with lemons, limes, grapefruit, and pomelo. All citrus species have an alternate leaf arrangement and five petaled white flowers that are born in elongate clusters on the plant simultaneously with the fruit. The species of citrus differ in the types of fruits that they have and in the shape of the leaves and the spines on the stem.
0: Okay, so if it is citrus, then how do you determine which kind?
1: So I assess the different parts of the plant separately. We can rule out lemons and limes because their leaves tend to be broader and rounded, while those in this painting are elliptical or long ovals, slightly wider below the middle, with a narrow wing at the base where it attaches to the stem along what we call the petiole or leaf stalk. Most lemon leaves lack these wings. The edges or margins of the leaf are slightly rolled under and the veins give the leaves a slightly bumpy texture. This is consistent with oranges, both sweet oranges, Citrus sinensis, and bitter or seville oranges, Citrus aurantium. To distinguish between these two groups, we'd really need to see a little more detail of the leaves, which the artist hasn't given us. We then look at the flowers on the sprig, and I found these to be distinctly five-petaled, with a column of stamens, the male flower parts, in the middle that are fused together at the base, forming a white tube or sheath with the orange answers clustered at the tip. So this solid structure that we see in the middle of the flower in the painting is what I'm describing. This is kind of fusion is distinctly different from the individual filaments that you find in the stamens of many other plants. So it's very much a distinct feature of citrus.
0: So you're referring to that kind of tubular element on top of the open petals.
1: That's right. And when compared to orange flowers in historical botanical illustrations or contemporary photographs, the petals in the painting are much shorter with rounded tips, and I wondered about that. Orange blossom petals and indeed lemon and lime petals narrow to a point the tips of the petals in the painting are not as precise as the rest of the drawing. And I wonder if they've been painted as if they were curled under.
0: Okay, it's interesting because as you say, if I look closely, they don't really appear to be rendered as if they're curled under when we zoom in on the image. Um, It's true that we're obviously not dealing with a botanical illustration here. So the artist has taken some creative license and possibly abstracted or
1: simplified these flowers. Um, That could be, although the overall structure is very distinct. And though not as precise as a botanical illustration, I was really impressed by this painting that the leaves in the painting are very detailed. And as I say, the flowers are morphologically distinct. Um, So it's not a botanical illustration, but it's a very well rendered image of the plant that he wanted to portray. Um, It's interesting to note that the leaves in the floral sprig are much smaller than those on the tree, which I mentioned earlier. Um, The perspective seems to be slightly off. Um, there is a hint of immature green buds at the top of the tree, but no flowers. So the emphasis is definitely on the sprig. Mm -hmm. So even if we look at it, the way the light
0: hits the leaves on the sprig and that contrast between the flowers, and as you say, the lack of any blossom or fruit on the tree, which is actually quite curious. So in comparing this to other portraits with oranges, this is actually somewhat unusual. Um, we will return to that, but can we deduce any more about the type of orange tree that's represented? As you say, it's kind of rendered quite well.
1: I've consulted some botanical illustrations from the 18th and early 19th century to see if that would assist us in determining a type of orange blossom. From them, I conclude that this is an orange tree and that the blossom is either citrus or antium, the bitter orange, or Citrus sinensis, the sweet orange. Unfortunately, the taxonomy or naming of plants at that time was still in flux, and the name Citrus aurantium was applied to both sweet and bitter oranges, so it's difficult to use the illustrations for a precise identification. Subjectively, I lean toward bitter or Seville orange, Citrus aurantium. But the artist has not provided us enough precise detail to really tell. And as we say, it wasn't intended as a botanical illustration. As a further test, to I tried comparing the floral sprigs to other paintings of ladies with orange blossoms and certainly found them to be similar.
0: Interesting. I think in the the illustrations that you sent me, the botanical illustrations, I, my very novice botanical eye, if I can even call it that, um, I definitely thought the citrus orantium looked the closest as well. So under our interview on the dress with Dr. Ingrid Maida and your colleague, Dr. Alexandra Palmer, We've linked to a great essay on the portrait, which was featured on the fashion history timeline written by fashion scholar, Kenna Lives. The focus of her essay is definitely on the costume depicted, but she makes this interesting suggestion that although the blossom is an orange, the tree may possibly be a frangipani in the genus Plumeria, which uh, is indigenous to Central America, as she notes. I think most often when a blossom and a tree are represented together in a portrait of this type, they tend to be of the same kind. The implication really being that the sitter has kind of plucked the sprig off the tree. But do you think this could be an exception here? And what do you make of the Frangipani suggestion?
1: So what's really interesting and, to be honest, a bit frustrating about this painting is that the tree in the background is very dark when compared to the sprig, so it's hard to see the detail, especially when looking at a photograph, which we've had to do during COVID, (laughs) rather than the real painting. Um, I actually had to adjust the contrast in the images so that I could more clearly distinguish the leaves from the background for the tree. And I found them to be the same shape with the distinctive winged or notched leaf base that I mentioned before and the short leaf stalk. The single cluster of buds on the tree matches the shape and orientation of the flowering sprig in the lady's hand. This suggests to me that the painter was depicting the same kind of plant. The suggestion of frangipani made some sense to me from the perspective of the habit of the tree with the elliptical leaves that, as I mentioned before, are larger and of a different perspective than those on the sprig and that appear to be erect and tightly clustered, almost sprouting from the top of the tree rather than branching. However, it's always important to remember that when identifying a plant in nature as a decorative motif or in a painting, we have to look at all of its features because a plant is a sum of its parts. When I do that, there are several important differences between frangipani and the features on the potted tree. Frangipani leaves are not tapered at the base the way these are. Frangipani has a branching flat-topped flower cluster of trumpet-shaped flowers, while our tree, like the lady's sprig, has an erect, elongated flower cluster bearing stalked, oval buds. And finally, the tree trunks are different. Given the degree of detail with which the artist has executed the flowers and the leaves, I would expect that diagnostic features would also be depicted on the tree trunk. Frangipani bears distinctive leaf scars on its trunk that give it a pockmarked appearance. This is a diagnostic feature that shows up in botanical illustrations from this era. The details of the trunk in the painting are very hard to see, but it appears to be smooth rather than distinctly patterned. So overall, I'm afraid I'm going to have to reject the suggestion of frangipani, and I feel really confident that the artist is is depicting a single kind of plant and that all of its features indicate that it is a species of orange. Okay, great, interesting.
0: So if the frangipani tree might have suggested a Central American location for this work, uh, but we assume these to be representations of a single plant, an orange tree, and working within our time frame of 1770 to 1780, which we've established, where might such an orange tree have grown in this period?
1: To be honest, Monique, almost anywhere in Europe or warm regions of the new or old world. Okay. <laughs> our, <laughs> oranges originated in Southeast Asia and Southern China. Bitter or Seville oranges were first imported to Sicily and Spain in the 9th and 10th century. Sweet oranges from China arrived in Europe in the 16th century, and between the 17th and 18th century spread across Europe and into subtropical and tropical areas of the New World. The entomologist and artist Maria Sibylla Marion, who was a Dutch uh, entomologist, painted one in Suriname when she traveled there in 1699 and included it in her book, Metamorphosis Insectorum Surinensium, published in 1705. There are paintings of oranges in the treatise Flora Indica and Flora of the Coromandel Coast that were compiled by the botanist William Roxborough at the Calcutta Botanical Garden in India in the late 18th century. And one of the most curious things, Philip Miller, who was chief horticulturalist of the Chelsea Physic Garden in London, had in his 1768 edition of his Gardener's Dictionary detailed descriptions of oranges grown in England, Italy, and Spain. He also mentions the trade of plants back and forth to the West Indies. In other words, by the late 18th century, oranges had a worldwide distribution in warm climates, And were grown indoors in cooler climates.
0: Okay, so this doesn't exactly help us in arriving at a location, but nor does it limit us, let's say. The sprig is being held by the sitter, a woman of color whose identity and story we don't yet know. We'll get to potential symbolism, but the point has been raised that perhaps the blossom could signal a more specific location for the sitter. This is, as you mentioned, the age of imperialism, and you're suggesting that oranges could be anywhere. So, why did they spread so widely?
1: Oranges were prized not only for their edible fruits, which by the 1700s were known as a cure for scurvy and were used by sailors going around the world, but they're also known for and used for natural oils produced by glands in the flowers in the leaves and in the rinds of the fruit that were used for perfumes and for flavoring foods. And so this is a long historical um, usage of these plants. Orange blossoms are recorded as components of flower arrangements in England, France, and the Netherlands in the 17th and 18th century. And we know by accounts like those of Philip Miller that they were um, widely prized for gardens and other things. So they were a luxury item that everyone wanted. Okay.
0: So you mentioned um, how they were grown in warm climates or indoors in, in cooler climates. So I'm sure that brings to mind the Orangerie for many people. Um, orangeries, of course, were popular around this time.
1: Can you explain what they are? So, yes. So, as I was saying, oranges grow best in a subtropical or Mediterranean climate. They don't do well in the intense heat of the extreme tropics, and they're not winter hardy in the cool temperate climates of northern Europe and North America. So, orangeries were specially constructed buildings with large south-facing windows and fires for heat, They were built by royalty and wealthy merchants to house orange trees in the winter months and eventually other more tropical plants as well. The plants were kept in clay pots that could easily be heated in one account if icicles formed. Um, They used lamps to come in and and heat around the plants um, so that they would be able to survive the cooler winter months. The intense popularity of orangeries dates from the mid 1600s through to the early 1800s um, when they were replaced by fully glass stovehouses as we know today. Um, one of the most famous was built for Louis XIV in Versailles in the 1670s But Orangeries existed throughout France, Germany, Italy, the Netherlands, the UK, and the Americas. George Washington built one in his plantation at Mount Vernon. Orangeries were built in a period referred to as Orangemania, when oranges were the current horticultural craze. And we know that crazes like this went in waves from tulipomania earlier through to this particular one at this time.
0: Okay, so we also have to consider who grew them, who grew oranges. You mentioned wealthy hobbyists tending to their oranges in their orangeries, in their formal gardens, say. Um, And you included George Washington and his plantation, Mount Vernon. So this portrait was painted at the height of transatlantic slavery. Even if citruses were more of a novelty plant grown on a kind of smaller scale during this period, I wonder if the oranges grown for foodstuffs or to be used in perfume might have depended on enslaved labor. As was the case with George Washington, hobbyists with orangeries might also have been enslavers. I'm just wondering about the kind of overlap in people engaged in kind of hobbyists growing
1: of exotic fruit and other. So you're correct, Monique, that the owners of orangeries may indeed have been enslavers. In my research, I haven't been able to discover a lot about orange production in the 18th century. We know that a lot of it was occurring in the Mediterranean regions, in uh, southern Italy. Um, but I haven't been able to find out a lot about who the labor forces were. We know that on the scale of things, they were much smaller operations. But what I can say is that I don't think they depended on enslaved labor nor dra- drove the slave trade in the way that cotton and sugarcane did. We, we know that they required a lot of people and that was the, the driver those particular crops were the driver of the slave trade. Um, This was a very different kind of horticulture on a very different scale.
0: Okay. So the tree shown in the portrait is a potted specimen. We see the pot that it's growing in, grown on a small scale, as you mentioned, um, presumably by someone with means. So just as the young lady's dress and her jewelry are indicating status, it seems that the the plant is also serving to point to the prestige of the sitter. Um, You've already mentioned royalty and wealthy merchants. Can you elaborate on who might've owned a potted orange tree?
1: So likely someone with social standing in Europe or in the colonies. Um, For several centuries, oranges were grown almost exclusively by royalty and aristocracy, and that was because they were hard to maintain and hard to get hold of. Um, They were luxury items that no one else could afford. However, in the late 17th century and throughout the 18th century, more and more exotic plants were introduced and became accessible to the rising merchant classes in Europe and in the New World, through botanical books and magazines, but it was as trade was going around the world. And and botany was very much, as you mentioned at the beginning, part of this period and was driving many of of the economies, both in in new things being described and uh, becoming more available. In fact, in the exhibition, Florals, Desire and Design at the ROM, just to give a little bit of a plug here, uh, we have we have explored the link between this golden age of botany and botanical illustration, where they were uh, using illustrations to describe the new plants that were coming in and being classified, and the rising popularity of plants and floral motifs. So gardening, this was a real craze at the time. Um, Kitchen gardens, conservatories, and orangeries were added to homes and gardens and exotics. And by exotic, in botanical terms, I'm meaning a plant that is from somewhere else, not one that is native to the region. Um, They became available in nurseries. And this is evidenced by a series of botanical paintings, the 12 months of flowers that was Um, actually a novel um, catalogue, an innovative nursery catalogue, published by Robert Ferber in England in 1730. And one of the months included orange flowers in the painting, so we know that they were around. Um, There are also many reports at this time of people using oranges and orange-scented water in cooking, but it was definitely still a luxury item in keeping with the rest of the portrait. Hmm.
0: Okay, so we've covered a lot of ground in terms of the scientific identity of the sprig and the plant material. And in the history of the, of the plant, it's and its geographic reach in different periods. But the plant in the painting reads as a symbol or a sign of something. Do you have any guesses as to what the orange blossom might represent?
1: Orange blossoms were a symbol of purity, innocence, and chastity across many cultures and time periods from China and the West. Um, They were often associated with brides, and that became even more so later in the Victorian era and moving forward. Um, Orange blossom was also the official symbol of the Royal House of Orange Nassau, beginning in the 17th century. Orange blossoms and other portraits from the 17th century have been thought to link the subject to the House of Orange, the Royal House of the Netherlands. Um, This seems less so for this painting because there are no orange fruit in the picture as many of them had, but it's still a possibility.
0: It's interesting that you say this because we don't want to kind of preemptively declare this with any certainty. Um, our research into it is really ongoing. But we currently think that the portrait was very likely painted in Amsterdam by a Dutch artist named Jeremias Schultz. We found two comparable portraits in Daventer in the Netherlands that are currently attributed to this, to this artist. So in terms of the House of Orange, I'm thinking, for example, of a late 17th century portrait of William, Prince of Orange, as a child, and he is picking, as you say, oranges um, in a kind of multitude off of a potted orange tree. And this returns us to an earlier point, this curiousness that there are no fruit or blossoms even on the tree. I think it's a distinctive property of orange trees and correct me if I'm wrong, that the blossoms bloom alongside the fruit on the tree. That's correct. So where is the fruit (laughs) and where are the other blossoms? This kind of begs the question as to whether or not this is a further symbolism, perhaps, emphasizing maybe the innocence or chastity um, of the figure, perhaps more than the fertility that might be associated with the fruit itself. This also might be in keeping with the kind of presumed younger age of the sitter.
1: Yeah, and I, as I have thought about this, I, it's also interesting that where we, what we do get on the tree itself is actually something in bud. It's it's yes. not even out in flower, so we've we've got sort of this illusion of something about to come, and then we've got mm-hmm. this very distinctive blossom in their hand. Um, of sort, of course, going into extreme symbolism takes me a little bit away from my botanical roots, but uh, I agree with you. In in and it's very distinct that they're they're showing this as a blossom. They're showing this as something. And if we think of orange blossoms as also being something where the fragrance was very important, that may also have some symbolism to it. It, it, It's making her even more desirable in some ways.
0: Mm -hmm. Evoking this sense of smell as well as touch and Mm -hmm. sight. So you also explicitly referred to oranges as exotics, and you explained the kind of botanical definition of the exotic plant just a moment ago. Um, we spoke of how, you can't, how we can't quite yet narrow down a location for our subject, given the ubiquity of oranges across the globe, even though we now suspect Amsterdam to be the likely place of production. So when Adam spoke with Dr. Charmaine Nelson, they compared this portrait to two portraits painted within a decade of this work of Black women whose lives we know a little bit more about. François Malépard de Beaucourt's portrait of a Haitian woman, woman identified through Dr. Nelson's scholarship as most likely representing Marie-Thérèse Zemir, who was enslaved by the artist's wife and David Martin's double portrait of Dido Bell and Lady Elizabeth Murray. So both of these portraits feature fruit. Malé Père de Beaucourt's sitter holds a bowl of fruit, as does Dido Bell in Martin's portrait, whereas the white sitter, her companion, Lady Elizabeth Murray, holds a book. So in the context of those two portraits, The fruit seems to be placed there by the artists to emphasize the, quote, exoticism of their sitters. I'm wondering if you think the orange blossom and tree serve any similar purpose in this portrait.
1: I think the first thing to note, um, and it comes out in Adam's uh, discussion with um, Dr. Nelson, is that this painting is very different than the other two. Um, considering them and having looked at them from my botanical rather than an art historical perspective, the portrait of a Haitian woman depicts the woman in a tropical setting and native dress, including the seed necklace that adorns her neck, which was something that I as a botanist and the custodian of a seed necklace collection uh, picked up on right away. Um, The fruits that she carries are fruits that are associated with tropical climates, and are consistent with the seeming context of the painting. Interesting pineapples, and she holds in her hand a tray of which pineapple is the uh, largest fruit, were very fashionable in the early 18th century and were used widely in many different decorative arts. And my research has recently uncovered that, you know, they were seen as a symbol of human's command over nature. Um, And they were first cultivated in Europe, interestingly, in the Netherlands. Um, In the second painting, The Portrait of Dido, when I consider just the fruits themselves, I can see that they're European. They're they're not exotic in the same way, so they would have been more familiar um, with grapes, apples, and boughs of branches rather than being exotic, in my definition of exotic, coming from somewhere else. However, I noted when I was listening to the episode that Dr. Nelson talks about often um, black women being portrayed with things in nature and that being something. So that would certainly be consistent with that. Um, When we look at at this painting, um, even though the oranges are technically exotic fruits in Europe, meaning that they came from elsewhere, I don't think of them or their flowers as particularly representing exoticism as we've discussed. I think they are much more a symbol of luxury and they were something that was a symbol of wealth. And this is a time um, in your conversation with Alexandra Palmer, she talks about this being the period of enlightenment and refers to the sheen on the dress and other things. And of course, the interest in plants and in, um, this was all part of the scientific curiosity that was going on at the time. And plants and flowers and other things um, became a symbol of social standing. So um, this sort of thing, having an orange blossom in a potted tree that is obviously one that um, was in some kind of purposeful garden setting, uh, would again have, have added to this notion of, that has come up about other parts of this painting, of it being a symbol of luxury. And so I sort of feel that that kind of overrides the exoticism aspect of it, that we're really symbolizing wealth.
0: Mhm. And as you say as we've kind of discussed there is no fruit, right? So it's by contrast to the other to the the other two paintings here we have the blossom explicitly with our kind of conjectured symbolism of reading about kind of chastity and innocence versus the kind of fertility um that we might see associated with with other portraits.
1: That's absolutely correct. I think the fact that we only have the orange blossom in this case has to have been very deliberate. Mm-hmm. And indeed, as you say, no further
0: blossoms on the potted tree. So it's as though it's the very first bloom <laughs> almost that she has plucked off and is showing to us.
1: Yeah and and also the fact that the tree is as i say much darker in the background it, it it's there it's part of the painting but she and the blossom are really what's front and center so it it becomes a prop of a different sort in in the background um but but definitely by the way it's planted puts it in a context and i think that's the same uh, with the obelisk and things in the background, which you have suggested, you know, maybe part of, of of a garden setting or something that we would have in Europe at the time. So the the whole thing points to it it being um, something that is is very much in a luxury sort of garden type of setting. Hmm. Yeah. I've I've shared with
0: you and with Adam, and I can maybe post a link to this. Uh, prints. This is actually a Dutch print from an earlier, slightly earlier period, but where we see kind of designs for formal gardens that include these garden obelisks. This, in this case, it's a much more ornate uh, obelisk than we see in our painting. But um, I just thought it was interesting that right beside that, the um, the print contains two potted orange trees. So very much in keeping with the kind of desirable a formal garden from around this time in in the Netherlands, what's more. Well, this has all been very fascinating, and thank you so much, Deborah, for joining us and for sharing all of your botanical expertise um, while looking closely at what we can now with more knowledge and more certainty call Portrait of a Lady Holding an Orange Blossom.
1: Thank you, Monique. It's been a real um, pleasure to be part of this project. And as you say, it's fascinating. And it it shows us that, um, yeah, there are many, many different aspects that give us many different kinds of clues and that set us into a context. So uh, thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to join you. Absolutely, thank you again.